Good morning, everybody. Uneducated Economist here. I got my man Jason Hartman with me. Jason Hartman and I were speaking together at the Rebel Capitalist Live event uh, last year, actually. It was almost a year ago now. Yeah. Um, actually, I think we shared the stage at two of them, Simon. Yes, we did, actually. It was in, then again in Miami, so that was that was an awesome event. Jason puts on an incredible presentation when it comes to the housing market. He is incredibly full of knowledge. I mean, just some of the most amazing, uh, amazing stuff that he was talking about at these presentations. So, Jason, can you kind of take it away a little bit here? Introduce yourself to the viewers and, and yeah, kind of take it off here. Yeah, thanks, Simon. So, um, you know, I've been in real estate for many, many years, and um, I had a traditional real estate company that I sold to Coldwell Banker in 2005, right before the Great Recession. So a lot of people say the timing was pretty good on that. Uh, but about a year before that deal, uh, 2004, I got into the investment real estate business, meaning that I, I started a company back then that just worked with 100% investors only, not traditional home buyers. And uh, we were helping uh, people invest in properties nationwide and in, in markets all over the country that we uh, researched and recommended to people. And um, now uh, thousands and thousands of transactions later, thousands and thousands of clients later, uh, 18 years hence, or 19 years hence, I guess now, um, uh, we have learned a lot about the real estate market. A lot of it not only comes from our research, and we do quite a bit of research, but we also learn a lot, frankly, from our own clients. Uh, they are really one of the best sources of information. Also our affiliates, because what we do is we run a referral network that helps people buy properties nationwide. And so we have all these referral partners and uh, those referral partners are kind of the boots on the ground in all of these different markets nationwide. And so there's quite a lot of learning and information exchange that takes place just every single day in my businesses. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been interesting to me that everybody is talking, well, not everybody, but, uh, you know, a lot of people are talking about a real estate market crash. And um, they were talking about that leading up to the Great Recession, okay, you know, 14, 15 years ago, depending on how you count it. Um, but they also really started talking about it a lot again in 2012, 11 years ago, as we were coming out of the Great Recession. And it's so interesting how the human mind works. You know, um, evolutionarily, we were evolved to be negative. Uh, that's the way our minds evolved because throughout all history, pretty much until the industrial revolution, we lived in an environment of scarcity. And so one negative thing could end our lives or our family's lives. And so we had to really focus on negative things. And uh, it's interesting how so many people are looking for this big market crash. And I have looked for it too, but I just don't see much evidence of it. Uh, even though we've got a market now of much higher interest rates than we had during the COVID lows, um, we uh, do not have much increase in supply at all. There's very little inventory, and we can talk about that in depth because we analyze this every single week. Um, uh, you know, the foreclosure rate that, that people are kind of looking for, thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to time the market. I'm going to wait until, you know, I missed. Most, most of these people that are the like market timers that are the bitter ones are the people that missed out on the opportunity uh, the last you know, 10, 12 years, depending on how you look at it. Uh, and they missed out. 
And so they're thinking, okay, I'm going to keep my powder dry. I'm waiting for the crash. And this time I'm going to pounce and I'm going to buy up properties for pennies on the dollar. And, you know, I, I, I just don't see it coming. I, I don't see it happening this time around. Now, that's based on everything that's going on now. We've got an economy that is definitely in trouble. Uh, we've got a government that is an absolute disaster. Uh, but it's not just our government. It's the world, you know, all the world's governments, frankly. Uh, they're all Keynesian spenders. Um, and, uh, and all of this stuff we've got going on. Now, of course, if some extraordinary event happens, like, uh, say, uh, in Ukraine, a nuclear weapon is used, right? That'll change everything for sure. Uh, if rates go up dramatically, that'll change everything. But based on the current uh, situation and outlook now, I, I just don't see any big crash coming. And I've got a lot of evidence, I think, to support that view. Yeah. Um, and I'm very much in agreement with you, like looking for that evidence. Like I try to analyze a lot of uh a lot of the, well, I mean, most of it's anecdotal evidence coming from where I work because I do, you know, lumber sales for a living. And so I'm trying to look at the inventory levels coming from the new build side of things. That's where like kind of my my focus has been. But again, like looking at all the different aspects of it, let's talk a little bit about interest rates. I mean, this is what I heard when interest rates rise, the housing market is going to crash. Nobody's going to be able to afford these higher payments. Is that the case? What's going on with interest rates? Let's break that down a little bit. And what are your what are your views and what you're seeing? Yeah, great question. If your assistant could allow me to share my screen, I've got some good charts. Just make me a co-host, and I can share my screen. I got some good uh, data for you on that. But um, to answer your question, um, interest rates are obviously an issue because real estate is a debt-driven asset class, and so most people don't buy a house based on the price. They buy a house based on the mortgage payment. And uh, these increases in interest rates from quite literally 5,000 year lows. <laughs> I know some may be thinking, are you kidding me? No, I'm actually not kidding. There's a great book by the late David Graeber. Um, I did not get to interview him on my show before he passed away. I wish I did. Um, it's called Debt, the First 5,000 Years. And um, they have really tracked interest rates for about five millennia, believe it or not. Uh, of course, you know, the data is not going to be perfect, <laughs> right? But um, during the COVID era, we had certainly the lowest rates we've ever seen in modern history, right? Where money was essentially free and um, uh, that drove uh, a massive supply of money, a tidal wave of money, money coming at all sorts of assets, but one of them was obviously real estate, and it drove the prices up. And so people are using that COVID era now, and this is a huge mistake, by the way, they're using the COVID era as a benchmark rather than an anomaly. And that's how it should be considered. The COVID era interest rates were not a benchmark. That is not anything to compare anything to, because that was a totally abnormal situation that, you know, I've certainly never seen in my uh, multi-decade career, and uh, we will probably never see again in our lifetime, okay, those kinds of interest rates. Um, but uh, if, you, if you go back a little further and zoom out a little bit more and you look back at 2019, 2018, 2015, whatever, you know, decade past, right? And you compare things to those periods, you'll see that housing really isn't that expensive. 
And I know people might be thinking, are you kidding me? Housing is super expensive. Well, really think that through. If you adjust, so there's two elements, of course, there's the price of the house and there's the payment on the house, okay? So those two elements. So if you adjust the price on the, of the house uh, and you compare it to the inflation rate over the years, uh, both the government's inflation rate and then the real inflation rate, uh, you'll obviously see that uh, adjusted for inflation, housing is not nearly as expensive as people think. Um, but if you do that on the mortgage payment on the house, putting you know 20% down, for example, um, you'll see that housing is actually quite a bit less expensive than people think. And the reason people think it's expensive is because houses have become better and larger than they were. For example, in 1970, the typical house was 1,500 square feet. Today, the typical house is almost 2,300 square feet. Yet everybody makes this comparison. They say, well, you know, back in 1970, a house was only $50,000 and, you know, there or even less, depending on where. And they're right, but they're not adjusting for inflation, of course, and they're not adjusting for the size of the house. The house is 157% larger than it used to be, right? And it's obviously better. You're in the construction materials business. You know that nowadays, uh, virtually every new house is going to have low E energy efficient windows. They're going to be double paned. Uh, they're going to be much better at keeping noise out. Uh, the houses are just much better constructed. They have all sorts of safety features, fire suppression features, uh, you know, better materials, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So those things are never taken into account and they should be. Uh, so there's just a lot more to understand when you peel back the onion. But probably the biggest factor in the human mindset for thinking real estate is so expensive is this one. Hedonic adjustments or hedonic adaptation. Hedonic adaptation is really the better uh, one for that. So hedonic, um, you know, because you teach your audience about the consumer price index. And one of the ways they manipulate the consumer price index is through hedonic adjustments. And hedonic is from the root word hedonism, and hedonism, of course, means seeking pleasure. And uh, so the question is, how much pleasure do we get out of something um, when we buy it, right? If we, if we, you know, like, I just got a new iPhone, right? This new iPhone was $1,700, <laughs> okay? But my first phone weighed 14 pounds, only made phone calls, and cost $3,200. So, and then if you adjust that for inflation, you see that the iPhone is actually quite cheap. So hedonically adjusted, it's actually gotten a lot cheaper, right? And that's definitely true with technological items because they change so quickly. Um, but with housing, it's a pretty low tech item. So the evolution of, of it, and we should talk about construction advancements uh, if you want, because you, you know a lot about that. Um, so we've just come to expect more. That's the bottom line. Our expectations are so much higher than they used to be. And that's why we think housing is expensive. I mean, in the old days, right, you know, you'd be lucky if you got an avocado green formica countertop in your kitchen. Today, you're going to expect quartz or granite. Okay. You know, you know, it's just a whole different house. Okay. So, uh, so there's just a lot of, of layers to that. Okay. Yeah, that's a, and that's a very interesting one that I very rarely do you hear anybody talk about the quality of the house adding to the value comparatively to 
the years of the past because that it dramatically changes, you know, just like you're saying, just the countertops alone makes, you know, is, is a comparison that can be had. Um, let's talk a little bit about the inventory levels. Like sure. this, this is the next one. So interest rates we talk about, but inventory levels. Yeah. So, um, how how are we going to see an inventory rise like this is this is the big ticket i mean you got to see it from like somebody either selling a place or building a place where is it going to come from what do you think like if we were to see it it's that's a very good question and the way you phrased that question was perfect it shows that you have a much deeper understanding of the market than most people here's why uh for the first time in my career and I don't know, maybe the first time ever, we're moving into this world where we have like two markets operating at once. And here's what I mean by that. We've got all the existing housing inventory, right? That's about 140 million homes, give or take in the country. Okay. Country's about 330 million people. We got about 140 million housing units. And of those 140 or so million housing units, 25% of them have a mortgage at or below 3%. Well, say that one more time, Jason, please. Yeah. Of the 140 million housing units in the country, of the ones that have mortgages, 25% of them have a mortgage rate on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at or below only 3%. Wow. That is amazing. And Simon, this is the poison pill that the Federal Reserve has put into the housing market. And when I say poison pill, it's good or bad, depending on what side of that poison you're on. Here's what I mean. These people will not be very motivated at all to sell those homes. And if they ever get into financial trouble, number one, it's unlikely they will because their housing cost is so low. Now, of course, they have other costs in their life. They have, you know, student loans, healthcare, all, you know, food, all the expenses all of us have, right? But, uh, well, hopefully we don't have student loans because that's a complete scam. But <laughs> anyway, you know, the other expenses we all have, right? Uh, but don't get me started on that one. So it's very unlikely that they will fall into distress because they have such a cheap mortgage. And guess what? They've got 28 to 29 years left on those ultra cheap mortgages. So number one, are they likely to get into distress? Number two, even if they weren't in distress, would they ever be motivated to sell those houses? Because when they sell that house, they gonna, they're going to lose that cheap mortgage. I have always said, Simon, I teach a, a trademark strategy that you've heard me talk about uh, called inflation-induced debt destruction. And I've been teaching that strategy for about 19 years now. And what that means is that one of the beautiful wealth creators with real estate is uh, that we borrow money valued at today's dollars and we pay the money back valued at tomorrow's dollars which are going to be cheaper as long as there's inflation so for example if you have um say you have a few properties and the total mortgage balance on those properties is one million dollars and if the inflation rate is nine percent now you know that was recently reported you know now they're saying it's a little lower but 
let's go with 9% just as an example, okay? If the inflation rate is 9%, the balance of your mortgage is literally that million dollars in hopefully multiple mortgages for multiple properties is literally going down at a rate of $90,000 in the next year. Wow. Because inflation debases or devalues the debt. And when you're a debtor, that's good for you. When you're, when you're the borrower, you're in the right position. When you're the lender, you're in the bad position because you're getting paid back in those cheaper dollars. So in, in an inflationary environment, um, there is a wealth transfer going on from, bar, from lenders to borrowers. The lenders are literally making the borrowers more wealthy because of inflation. And so this is a great thing if you own real estate that has a mortgage on it and it's leverage. Okay, so we talked about the 25% that have mortgages at or below 3% interest, very cheap, not going to be motivated to sell and unlikely to ever be in distress because their mortgage is so cheap. But guess what? 65% of all mortgages in the country have a mortgage rate at or below 4%. That's 65%? 65%. That's still pretty incredible. I mean, 3% is super incredible. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. I'll give you the actual numbers. 4.7 million people in the country, 4.7 million, almost 5 million people, have a mortgage between 2 and 2.5%. Two Say that one more time for me, Jason. I'm writing these numbers down. 4.7 million people have a mortgage between two and two and a half percent. <laughs> that is incredible. So yeah. what are, I mean, the chances of those people relinquishing that loan, very unlikely, right? Very unlikely. So, if you, if you want to have a real estate crash, you must have one ingredient, distressed homeowners. If you do not have distressed homeowners, you will not and cannot have a real estate crash. All right. And so if we were to see distressed borrowers, I mean, where would that come from? It would have to basically come from a rise of unemployment, right? A very significant increase in unemployment. And the Fed is trying to increase the unemployment rate. They have stated that as a goal. They're trying to put you out of a job, okay? Uh, this is the problem with a centrally planned economy. It's just evil, okay? But it is what it, we have what we have, okay? Uh, so he, here's the thing. We talked about the two markets, right? And, and so the market we just talked about, Simon, actually there's one more statistic I gotta share with your audience. We talked about how 25% of the people have a mortgage at or below 3%. And 65% of the people have a mortgage at or below 4%. But what I didn't tell you is that 40% of all homes in the country have no mortgage whatsoever. They're free and clear. Boom. Yeah. So they're not going to be in distress very likely. Okay. So there is little sign of mortgage distress, but now let's talk about that other market. We talked about the two markets. That's the existing home market, the resale market. And inventory is incredibly low in the resale market. And I think it will continue to be that way for 
possibly decades to come. Who knows? But probably why is that? Long time. What? Why why would you see the uh, inventory levels being low? Like why wouldn't a new build come on? Why what's because that's pretty much where the new inventory is going to have to come from. Is pretty much going to come from a new build. But the you motivation, to, yeah, yeah, motivation to build doesn't really seem to be there with the home builders right now. And I work the industry. I don't see a lot of people walking through the door asking for, you know, house package prices. Yeah, it's like, yeah. so that's, it doesn't seem to be coming from the new build side of things, at least not from my perspective yet. Yeah. Yes, yeah, sort of. But the one thing I want to kind of distinguish there, these are the two markets. There's the new home market and the resale market. Okay, so we talked about the resale market and how there's unlikely to be much increase in inventory there. I mean, it might get a little higher, but it's not going to be significant. Inventory to get to normal levels in the resale market needs to at least double, if not increase by two and a half to three times what it is now. That would be a quote unquote normal market. So we are far below normal inventory in the resale market, existing home market. But in the new home market, it is a little different. Now, during the COVID era, there was so much demand for housing, okay, and so little supply that the builders did ramp up. And you saw that, of course, in your business. Uh, and there was massive spikes in construction materials costs, especially lumber. Now, that's come down quite a bit since then. Uh, but it's still, I believe, up higher than it was pre-COVID. Correct me if I'm wrong. You, you'll know better than I will. Um, but... Uh, there are quite a few new homes that are going to hit the market this year, and they do not have those cheap long-term mortgages. They have very short-term construction debt, and they are motivated to sell those properties. So that is a different market. Now, let's dissect that a little bit. When people talk about the new home market, um, they can say there's a bunch of new home inventory coming on the market because that started construction, you know, year and a half ago, two years ago. I mean, it didn't really start construction then, but there's a lot that happens before it comes out of the ground, right? There's entitlements and permitting and planning and all, all environmental impact reports and all kinds of stuff, right? Before they can build anything. But here's the thing. The vast majority of those new homes are higher priced properties. Okay, they're, uh, you know, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollar properties. Virtually zero. I mean, it's just a little bit has been built and is still being built is entry level housing. The housing is all much more expensive. And since we deal with investors who want to buy rental properties, none of this new home inventory virtually is suitable for them. It's all more expensive. More expensive homes do not make sense for rental properties because the rent to value ratio is very unfavorable for the investor. You know, as you go up in price of the home, the rent doesn't follow very much. It goes up a little bit, but there starts to be this big gap. Okay, when, you, when you're looking at the entry level housing market, the rent to value ratio is much more favorable for the investor. So investors want entry level bread and butter, basic housing to buy. And since the great recession, almost none of that has been built. There's, I mean, show me a new home builder building a 150 or $200,000 house. Yeah, I, and you know, I have to agree. And you know, a lot of it, 
a lot of times because, you know, I'm just viewing from like what I can see firsthand. You know, I live in a kind of a inexpensive area. My place, you know, the Astoria area is definitely growing yeah. with the uh, retirement communities and, you know, with the retirement money coming in and the, a lot of, for, you know, it's a lot of gentrification happening. A lot of the working class is simply oh, yeah. leaving and it's, and it's a different type of people that are coming. And I thought that was the reason why the expensive homes are coming in. But when I started looking out there deeper, it seems to be the case, like you were saying. And the and what it comes down to that I found is that really the home builder can't build a cheap right. home. They yep. they simply just can't do it. it there's yep. no there's not enough profit margin in it. So they have to go for the most expensive home that they could build into that market in order to get the profit margins to be a successful builder. And that's quite unfortunate condition. Yep. You know, really, like you just simply can't build cheap homes. Yeah, no, you can't. It doesn't make any economic sense. And that's why they don't build them. Uh, and, you know, Astoria, Oregon is is a beautiful area. And of course, it was made famous by Kindergarten Cop, the movie. <laughs> yeah, and the Goonies and yeah, a lot of... <laughs> with, with Arnold. <laughs> yeah, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's no question about that. And builders will not build those houses in the future. They cannot build them. They make no economic sense. So that is a big protection for investors in entry-level housing, okay? So when people hear these sound bites or read these sound bites in the mainstream media, it's just so misleading because, you know, they're, they're just talking about the broad market, okay? And there's no such thing as a national housing market in a country as large and diverse as the United States. You have to segment in so many ways. You have to segment by geography. You have to segment by price, by product type, by you know even neighborhood, okay? Uh, so there's a lot of segmentation that has to happen. And what I'm telling people is, no matter what you hear in the media uh, coming up, right? They're not talking about entry-level housing that investors buy, okay? They're just not talking about that, you know? They're they're talking about just a broad swath of the market that can't be analyzed. It's, um, oh, I don't know, what's a good example? It's like saying, you know, uh, what's the price of hamburger versus what's the price of Kobe beef, right? It's just a completely different thing, okay? Right. Yeah. And, you know, and that's just an interesting thought, like what you were saying is that the investment community is going after those cheap homes first, right? Oh, yeah. And they're cash buyers, right? I mean, pretty much. Well, no, I no, mean, they, they, they like to, to use in, leverage. But, yeah. I mean, but, our, our yeah. clients, we recommend they use leverage whenever they can sure. uh, to buy their properties because they get inflation induced debt destruction. Uh, right. Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, kind of what I'm seeing here is that houses that are new being built are built for those who can actually have a lot of money. And those homes that are being built for those who might be entry level are getting eaten up by the investors, right? Uh, yes. Now, the investment. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, however, the investment market has also cooled a bit, okay? Uh, but it's not consequential because there's just no inventory anyway, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, now, you know. The market has to be looked at. I think this is a good metaphor for people, uh, the one I'm about to say, okay, as to how to interpret the real estate market. Assume you go in your kitchen and you look at your kitchen sink, okay? 
and you plug the drain, you put the stopper in the drain in your kitchen sink, okay? And then you fill it with water. And I want you to fill it with water at about one third of its capacity, okay? And then I want you to just stop the faucet. Now it's plugged up, it's got one third the water in the sink, okay? And then I want you to turn the faucet on just a little bit, just a trickle, you know, turn it just coming out a little bit, okay? And that's the market we're in, okay? So we've got one third of normal inventory. Uh, we've got the drain, uh, which is, represents the absorption rate. That's the buyers buying the inventory. And the drain, you know, you can move the stopper a little bit and let a little bit of water drain out, but not as much as it used to be because the volume is down, uh, sales volume is down by about 30 to 35%, depending on where you look, okay? Uh, so there's less sales volume, but there's also very little inventory coming into the market and there's very little inventory on the market. So show me where the crash is coming from. You know, when, when yeah. people actually listen to this stuff, they agree and they can't, I, I ask my audience, my viewers on YouTube, my listeners to my podcast, I ask them to, you know, argue with me, like show me I'm wrong. Right. And, you know, you get some comments here and there by, you know, some idiot, you know, who makes a drive by comment who doesn't like look at the data. Um, of course, you're going to get that. But um, usually those, again, are the bitter people that missed out on the markets. They were too scared to invest in 2015. OK, <laughs> and they thought the crash was coming in 2015 and it just never came. Uh, yeah. So. You know, and I mean, to be honest with you, Jason, I was on board with that. Last year, I was forced into buying this house. Like, I literally feel forced into buying it because I could not find a place to rent in Astoria. Yeah. And it was either leave my area or buy a house. And I bought the house and immediately it was like almost like, well, interest rates had already started to tick up. I got it at three and a quarter. Oh, good but, for you. Yeah. Right. And now I look at it. Not only has the house value gone up, but there's no way that I would have been able to get into it at this point with the interest rates as high as they are. So I would have been already, I would not have been able to move into the house that I am in right now. Yeah, you would be priced out. Yeah. I would have been priced out, yes. And so that's like, that's kind of scary to think about how nervous I was about getting into this house and to be in the position that I am today. Thank God it happened. Like, I mean... Really, I do thank am thankful for that. I mean, rents in my area for a single bedroom apartment is eighteen hundred dollars. My payment on this house is twenty two. Yeah. I mean, it's just so. Like, where where is going to be your motivation to ever sell? Right? It's it, it's not. I yeah. mean, every day I see this, it, you know, I I feel better about being in in my house. Now, I mean, I do try to be like you know, a critical thinker on, on everything. Like I want to see, like, if I have a particular belief, I try to look for the opposite, try to yeah. say, okay, this is something that, you know, that is disagreeing with your beliefs or something. And everything that I look at so far is telling me that I'm, you know, even if we were to see like things like foreclosures, it's years away, you know, house prices are though elevated in coming down i don't see how could they could possibly crash without the inventory levels all these things that i'm compiling together it just tells me that the idea of having like a total housing market crash just doesn't seem to be very reasonable i mean i don't see where i mean i don't give any evidence to where housing market is going to explode and continue to go up yeah 
but that's that's just kind of my conclusion on on what i found even when it comes to like building a new home like hey i'm just going to build my own home and forget everybody out there or whatever the price to build a home today even though lumber prices have come down the materials the rest of the materials are still elevated and they have not come down yet. Windows are still expensive, doors, siding, all that stuff is still quite expensive. The only thing that's really come down is the framing of the house, the lumber and the plywood, which right. has come down dramatically. So but, that's kind of a good sign. But Simon, yeah. you know, one of the things I'm always saying on my show, and you've heard me say this, right, is uh, I say it so much that my listeners actually dubbed it the Jason Hartman question. I clearly did not make up the question, but I do repeat it a lot. And the question is, and this, this question is the question everybody should ask themselves all the time with everything in life all day long. And the question is, compared to what? Compared yeah. to what, right? So you talked about how lumber prices have come down, and you're right. But compared to what? Are, certainly they're lower than the crazy prices we had during the COVID era when the shortages were really hitting badly. Um, but are they lower than they were in 2019? Are they lower than they were in 2015? Like, folks, we're not traders here. You know, we're not looking to day trade the market. We're just looking for the big macro trend, and we want to put our money in and have it give us a good return. If the price goes down, big deal. We're not selling anyway, right? We're just going to keep the property and get yield and, and cash flow out of it. That's what an investor does. A speculator, it day trades. They're trying to say, oh, well, I better buy now because in six months the price will be higher or I better wait six months because the price will be lower, right? Like you cannot, first of all, I have never met anybody who can accurately time the market like that, okay? That's the first thing. But the second thing is, who cares? It's, it's, that's not what investing is. That's speculating and gambling, right? And I'm not, to say, I'm not saying you can't make money speculating and gambling. You can, and I've done it sometimes. Uh, but you can also lose a lot of money that way. Real investing is earning a return on investment over time. That's what investing is. And I'm an investor. Okay, and uh, so are you. Uh, and hopefully your listeners are too, because that's the strategy that wins the game long term. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I kind of call myself more of a saver than a, than an investor, but I want to be an investor is what I say, you know. Yeah. And so as long as I'm learning to be that, you know, and not considering myself an investor, because I don't seem to do very good at it at times, you know, but that's what I'm trying to do is trying to figure out where it is that I can position myself to make the best advantages for my life. And that's, that's, I think what really a lot of us are trying to do here. Absolutely. Um, so so let know, me ask you a question about that. Um, so as an investor, you know, you've got capital, right? And when you look out in the marketplace, you think, where can I best deploy my capital, right? Um, the mistake would be asking yourself, well, why can't I get the rate, the, the deal, right, that I could have gotten two years ago? Look, that ship has sailed, okay? It was better two years ago. Nobody would disagree with that. The rates were lower, the prices were lower, everything was better, right? But we didn't know, you know, like in the middle of COVID, people thought the world was ending, right? So, you know, you could have invested and, and bought, you know, five properties back then, and they could be worth 10% of what they're worth today if the world had ended and the you know population had died off by a couple billion people, there'd be less demand, right? That would be just a catastrophe 
okay? Uh, so nobody knew, and you never know what the future will hold, right? We, we don't know that. But the question is, is to think about the acronym that investors use. And that acronym is a woman's name, TINA, T-I-N-A. And it stands for, there is no alternative. T-I-N-A, there is no alternative, the TINA question, okay? And so what that question really means is, is you know, what is the best alternative? That's really what it means, right? And so, I mean, is it gonna be cryptocurrency? Is it gonna be stocks or bonds? I'd say that none of those assets are gonna do as well as income property. Is it gonna be precious metals? Not even close in my opinion, because precious metals don't have income, leverage, tax benefits, cash flow. You know, they don't, income property has these multi-dimensional characteristics. So you, you know, most people like the simpleton thinks, well, I'm gonna buy low and sell high. That's just one of many dimensions, okay? Um, you know, that's the way a non-dividend paying stock works or precious metals or cryptocurrency. Buy low, sell high, it's the whole game, done. End of discussion. Dividend paying stock, buy low, sell high, get some dividends in between. Little better, two dimensions, right? Income property, multi-dimensional. Buy low, sell high, get cash flow, get tax benefits, get leverage, get inflation-induced debt destruction. Um, you know, there's just a whole bunch of benefits. And when you own income property, you basically have a business and some of your general life expenses could become tax deductible, okay? So there, there's just a whole slew of benefits to it. Right. You know, Jason, <clears throat> something that I have um, been following quite a bit is uh, Cantillon's essay on economic mm -hmm. theory. Yep. And uh, <clears throat> the people closest because, to the money get the most of it. <laughs> right. The people who are yep. closest to the money. And this is, and he describes three people who live independently. Yep. The prince, the property owner, and the capitalist who invest into that system. Mm -hmm. Those are the three people. Everybody else has to work for the state. Yep. And so I think about that. You know, everybody, like everybody that I met at the Rebel Capitalist, not everybody, but most everybody, um, people that I have uh, inspired to try and emulate, all did it in real estate. Like everybody does. And, uh, you know, to think that uh, that as a, you know, just an average guy, working class dude, to become one of these property owners, such as yourself, you know, following guidance, like what you are trying to provide for the people is what they need to know. It's, it's like, it's, it's a secret only because people just don't know, but it's not like it's secret that it's information that can't be had. Right. And, right. you know, and that's what I love about this is that, you know, this whole real estate game and what you are showing people, you know, a lot with the other guys that I, that I follow as well is that you can do this from the ground, right? I mean, this is something that anybody can really do, right? Yeah, yeah, anybody can do it. Uh, income property is the most accessible asset class for the normal everyday person. And, um, you know, it, it, uh, there, there are basically two forces that throughout history have been forces that can create income, right? Or, or wealth ultimately, hopefully. And one is labor, and the other is capital. And that's the, the name, you know, like communism is all about the labor, right? 
And there's this constant battle between labor and capital and capitalism is obviously about as the name would imply capital, right? And there's this battle between which one should get more or less of the pie, the labor or the capital. And I will be the first to say that it is not fair the way the system works, but communism is also not the solution because that obviously has not worked out very well. Um, but you know, the most influential economist of all time was no doubt Karl Marx, uh, unfortunately. And you know, in essence, uh, his ideas were kind of theoretically good. But in practice, because humans are fallen and greedy and, you know, we all want more power and wealth and, you know, that's just self-interest, right? Uh, he didn't account for that very well. <laughs> so, so communism became very much abused. And, uh, and uh, sadly, that's the way it will always be because human nature will not change. Uh, so, um, you know, there's a constant struggle between capital and labor. And if you're pr probably most people listening to this are in the labor category, right? They're trading their time for money. Um, they want to get ahead. Uh, and you got to try to get out of that. The only way you're really going to get uh, ahead of the game is to get out of the labor uh, value trade uh, and get into the capital value trade because capital has uh, scale and leverage to it. Uh, and if you use that capital to buy the assets that every human on earth needs, and what do they need? There's only three things basically, right? Look at Maslow's hierarchy, food, clothing, shelter. Okay. That's the three basics, right? And, you know, they can rent that shelter from you. One of the things also, Simon, that we didn't talk about yet is everybody's so focused on real estate prices. Will the price go up? Will the price go down? You know, yada, yada. And you know, we talked about that. But what they didn't, what they don't talk about is if the market softens and prices soften or say they fall, right? Well, as long as the population didn't decline and the stock of housing didn't increase dramatically, you have another supply and demand market going on here. And that is the rental market. So what happens when interest rates go up and housing becomes unaffordable, like it is now, right? People would argue the affordability index is much lower than it used to be, and that's, that's true. What happens? Well, people who are renting are forced to stay in the renter pool. So there's more pressure, upward pressure on rents. And there might be downward pressure on prices, but upward pressure on rents. And these things you'll find are typically, they do get distorted by the government and they get distorted for short periods of time, but they never get distorted over long periods of time. They start to, the truth is always told over the long period of time. Um, but these, uh, uh, what happens is you see upward pressure on rents and rents go up. Okay, so if you're an investor and you have a big portfolio of properties, think about it. What would you want? Well, yeah, you want your properties to go up in value, but if you're not really focused on selling them and you're really an investor and not a speculator, then you really would like to see higher interest rates and lower housing affordability and high inflation. Yeah. Because what's that going to do? Well, the inflation's going to destroy your debt. It's going to push up upward pressure on your property price, but it's also going to push upward pressure on your rent. And the higher interest rates 
and low housing affordability is going to keep everybody renting from you and you're going to be able to raise your rents a lot more. Okay, so this is a two sided equation and it's typically non correlating, which is good, but most people just focus on the price and they never think about the income now so what's happening right now well right at this very moment rents have taken a bit of a breather they have gone up so much over the past couple of years it's like insane how much rents have increased but let me tell you something rents are going up folks rents are too low uh they always take two to three years to catch up to prices that is always the way it is think about it why is it that way well in a hot market when houses are selling and you're in your, you look around your own neighborhood, okay? Every time a new sale happens in the neighborhood, it's higher than the last one in a hot market where the money is cheap and flowing, right? So the comps are set very quickly and the prices rise very quickly. But every house in the neighborhoods that's, that's a rental property is probably on a one-year lease. And they can only raise the rent once a year. So the rents always lag the prices. The prices always precede the rent. It always happens that way. Right. So you, you get this kind of situation where you see the prices really escalate and the rents escalate a bit, but then the prices start to soften and tail off a bit and the rents just keep on going, okay? And, and, then, and then they cross and then it usually switches back because the Fed will do a pivot because we're in a recession. They'll ease the money supply. That'll start to put prices up again. This is the pattern that's happened throughout history, folks. It's over and over and over again. Happens yeah, and, right. And so that's when <clears throat> that, that moment when the rents are increasing and the prices drop, that's the moment when buying a house actually gets cheaper than renting, right? It's yeah. like, that's the idea. Because like for a while there, buying a house was like just as much as renting. You know, mm -hmm. it was like, you know, you didn't save any money by going to rent. And then at one point it gets discouraging to rent and it's cheaper to buy a house. And that's where the moment that the Fed, you know, that's that moment that you're talking about. Yeah. But whether that happens, who knows? Oh, but it'll happen. It's a pattern. It'll, it'll so happen. How yeah. far out? How far out do you think? Well, you know, the rents are lagging and, and in about two to three years, we will see the rent sort of catch up with the prices. And then we'll, and until then, we'll probably see prices cool off and soften a bit. Uh, but remember, you got to segment by property type and property price and so forth, like we talked about earlier. Um, I mean, in our market, the properties our investors buy, uh, I think those properties will increase in price this year by three to 6%. Okay. Uh, but properties in Los Angeles or San Francisco or some of these cyclical markets, those properties are going to decline in value. But our investors wouldn't buy those anyway. <laughs> yeah, you got smart investors. Yeah. Jason, man, thank you so much for taking time this morning to hang out with me. Um, you know, I'm going to put your link to your YouTube channel, your website. What else do you want links to, man? Where can the people find you to hang out with you? Yeah, thanks, Simon. So uh, my podcast, my main podcast is called The Creating Wealth Show. You can get that anywhere you get your podcast. Uh, I'm on YouTube as well. Uh, just trying to trying to catch up to Simon's YouTube success. Congratulations uh, on all you've done. You've done a great job with it. And uh, so you can find me on YouTube or podcast. Just type my name, Jason Hartman, 
and uh, you'll find it. Also, Simon, I'm not sure when you're publishing, but we've got a conference coming up in Scottsdale, Arizona at the end of January. So I'm not sure of the date this will be published, but uh, okay. you can check that out at my main website, jasonhartman.com. And, oh yeah, uh, we've no, got... let's give that a shout out again. What's that about? Um, so empower... uh, my conference is called Empowered Investor Live. And it's in Scottsdale, Arizona, January uh, 27th, 8th, and 9th. And um, we'd love to have you come. You can get more info at jasonhartman.com. Right on, man. That is excellent. So, yeah, definitely go check that out, guys. I'm going to leave links to all that stuff down in the description for you. Jason, it has been an absolute pleasure picking your brain for all the information that you have. You know, um, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of the viewers on this channel, we are, we are wanting to invest. We were looking to, to a place to put our money, and real estate seems to be the ticket to wealth. You've done it. You've shown us how to do it. I can't appreciate it any more than, than what you have done for me so much. Thank you. Hey, my pleasure, buddy. You know, income property, as I always say, is the most historically proven asset class in the entire world. Uh, it just has unique multidimensional characteristics. So I just want to help people access it. And, um, and that's my mission in life. So appreciate you having me. And I want to just say uh, happy investing to you and all of your uh, viewers and listeners, Simon. All right. Thank you, Jason. You have a great Thanks. morning. Man. Too.